Hello, I'm David Mosgrob. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Canada's 43rd general election is one of our closest ever. No party has formed government, majority or minority, with less than 35% of the national popular vote since John A. Macdonald did it in 1867 with 34.8%. But with the Liberals and the Conservatives trading back and forth for top spot in the polls in the low to mid-30s, and with the resurgence of the NDP in the bloc, that might change. Indeed, after election night, both the blue or red sides might need support of up to two, maybe even three other parties in the House of Commons in order to govern. Today my guest is Shannon Proudfoot, a journalist with Maclean's Magazine. She's here to discuss the performances of the parties so far, key ridings and regions to watch, voter turnout, and what to expect after the turns come in. So, let's start with uh, getting ourselves into a bit of trouble. (laughs) What (laughs) is going to happen on election night, and what's Parliament going to look like the next day? So we're recording this on Friday, so my crystal ball is even murkier than it would be by Monday when it's still going to be murky. Um, The the people will forgive you. My guess is a weak liberal minority. I think... Uh, and we'll talk more in more granular detail in a few minutes about regions. I, I, I just have kind of an inkling that they're going to pull out a few more seats and and kind of eke ahead a little bit. Um, and then we're going to have some interesting times. We're going to have a couple of weeks of or a month of buying and selling and horse trading and negotiating. Um, so it, it's kind of funny that in this sort of, I would argue, small, mean, kind of flat campaign with, with not a lot of vision or big themes, we might have sort of our most interesting chapter after Election Day. Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, so it's interesting to note that the Liberals are relying on what we call an efficient vote, that a vote for a Liberal is more likely to elect a Liberal than a vote for a Conservative is likely to elect a Conservative. And a mean ground game, they're pretty good at that. They're good at the doors, they're good at pulling people to the polls which could make a pretty big difference in, in close races. So say that happens and we end up with a minority liberal government, presumably backed by the NDP and someone perhaps, or maybe the NDP alone, depending on how they do. Mm-hmm. What do you think the horse trading looks like? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the liberals have the considerable advantage of having some obvious possible friends or bedfellows, yeah. you know, depending on how cheesy you want to be about it. Uh, the Tories are in the interesting position, like in some ways, a, a weak conservative minority win is much more interesting and perhaps much more sort of divisive and troubling for the country because they just have no natural allies. Yeah. Um, th- there's different horse trading depending, I think, depending on whether or not the Greens are involved. Mm-hmm. So the 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 NDP campaign has really centered on pharmacare, dentacare. I think they have emphasized to a much lesser degree their climate plan, even though theirs is quite ambitious too, less ambitious than the Greens, but considerably more than the Liberals. That doesn't seem to have been their signature so much. It's been much more this kind of populist, we need to tax the rich more and give a little more to everyone else for these universal programs. I I could see them, especially because the Liberals have made gestures towards getting ready for pharmacare, but it's been very much kind of this save the date approach. That to me seems like a road that is open, that the Conservatives have already opened the door rhetorically to saying, we think it's important, we'll put a little tiny yeah. bit of money on it. Um, that to me seems like a pretty natural thing that the NDP could goose in exchange for their, their support. And the Greens want pharmacare too, right? Yeah, so there's mm-hmm. there's some sim- like there's some sort of symbiosis there, I guess. And, and dental care, I think. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm afraid I don't know that off I can't the remember either, but I, I, sus- I mean, someone out there I'm sure is furiously Googling it now, but I, I think they did. So I, I would imagine, here's the thing, I could imagine the Liberals working with the NDP 
and or the Greens quite naturally. And in fact, I mean, as far as working with the NDP goes, they've done it plenty of times throughout Canadian history. I mean, again, I, I don't think there's a more productive period in Canadian history than, than 1963 to 1968 when the NDP and the, backed the Pearson government. This is when we had Medicare, bilingualism, student loan programs, the flag, CPP, uh, the Canada Assistance Plan. I mean, all kinds of things, right? So, I mean, it could work quite well. And especially because today's Liberal Party is tacked quite far to the left, there's really not a ton of troubling daylight between them and the current NDP. So, yeah, I, I don't, you don't have to work that hard to imagine that working and being quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I, mean I, I recently was asked to write an endorsement and, you know, endorsements are the, it's the tip of the spear, You're, you know, it, it's... A fool's errand off, often, but, uh, but an I, irresistible I, one, right? Well, I mean, yeah, and, and part of my job, so I, I was happy to do it ultimately. But I was saying I want to see a minority progressive parliament. It produces great policy, and it's typically stable enough that you can get two years out of it. In you know, unless you get a weird situation in Parliament where it comes down to literally one or two votes, which right. which could happen. Because it's all the in numbers. the numbers, right? Like, we can game out the broad strokes of what we think is going to happen here, but really it all depends on, like, what, a dozen or two dozen seats bouncing one way or the other. And then if if your numbers get really tight and really interesting, it's a different ballgame. Well, let's talk about that then. So uh, which regions or, or ridings... I've got a couple of pet ridings I want to talk about okay. in a bit. But first, which regions are you watching on election night? Um, so Quebec has been really interesting because as... Quebec often does, it tends to, I, I wouldn't use the word fickle, but Quebec tends to stampede, right? There's some kind of thing that collectively happens in their psyche Hive and they mind. all sort of go one way or yeah. the other. Um, and so what has happened there is is quite a precipitous rise for the bloc that has really eaten into the liberal support. And I think I think the liberals were hoping that they could make up some seats there that they might lose in Atlantic Canada yeah. or in some regions of Ontario. That does not look likely anymore. I know the Greens thought um, and this is part of a, a broader strokes thing maybe we'll touch on later, but if we thought that this election was a big moment of opportunity for the Greens, I know the Greens saw Quebec as a big location of opportunity because right. there's there's a lot of elements in the Quebec electorate that are really kind of green-friendly, sort of socio-demographically speaking, that their, their messaging and their priorities tend to resonate well there. And that has not come to fruition. The Greens have turned out not to have a great... Yeah. I don't know if it's a ground game, not great candidates, like just not a lot of coherency. They haven't spent a ton of time there. So that is not materialized. Um, now, the NDP has has had a, a bit of a tick up in Quebec too. But what's interesting, I think, is the, the rise of the bloc in Quebec has come at the expense of both the Liberals and the Conservatives. Yeah. So that's kind of a, an interesting space to watch and see kind of what color that province paints itself. Of course, Ontario, there's so many votes here. And so in 20... 11, when Harper won a majority, it was largely on the strength of almost utterly sweeping the 905. Yeah. And then in 2015, Trudeau's liberals took back a lot of those seats, almost all of them. It's looking a bit more bifurcated and mixed now, but as that crystallizes, like just because there's so many votes there, it's such a lazy thing, but like where, where goes Ontario, there goes the country in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, BC is also interesting because you have conservatives pretty well in the lead there in popular vote, but depending on what seats and which regions you're talking about, the NDP are coming up hard right behind the Liberals in second. And I think also the Greens think that is the most likely place that they might pick up a small handful of seats, particularly on Vancouver, on Island. Vancouver yeah. Island. Yeah, so those are sort of the pockets. The Prairies, though, what's interesting there is 
the conservatives are so far ahead and that's where like the, you get all those wasted votes where like does it really matter if you win your Alberta ridings by 75 or 85 percent but the NDP is also coming up from behind pretty rapidly they're maybe not enough to actually hmm. win seats it's probably more just a popular vote phenomenon but well I'm excited I'm most excited about British Columbia okay I lived I lived there for eight years and and uh, must have been two federal elections and I remember in 2015, we hadn't even opened our beers yet. The pizza wasn't there, and it was called a majority government. Right, because it was just that order. sweet from Alberta or from Atlantic Canada, right? Yeah, and that was it. That's now, a bit disappointing. It was way, extremely right? it's not disappointing. A fun election night. I, I understood Western alienation afterwards. I think this is where it comes from. Right. And of course, having the debates at the times they were didn't help either. But so this time around, though, watching the returns, I mean, it could come down to British Columbia, it could come down to the island. And, uh, you know, it's hard not to be interested in Vancouver-Granville, which is Jody Wilson-Raybould's riding. She might win it. It's, it's pretty extraordinary for an independent to win. She could do it. Markham Stouffville, what's the speaking yeah. of, of Jane Philpott in theory, could also win, which is also remarkable. Can we just have a moment of narrative fantasy where the numbers in the house end up so close? Oh, that one I'm of way those ahead of you. two. Oh my god! Or both of them? Or both? Oh my god! Or both of them? Well, this is what I mean. It, 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 it's such a strange parliament potentially that you can imagine a liberal a fairly stable liberal minority the liberal ndp minority uh group emerging or one or two votes where jody wilson raybould or jane philpot or god help us maxime bernier or elizabeth may and uh, paul manley and maybe a handful of other greens could hold the balance of power you know which means every vote would matter every vote in the house of commons would be a close one, potentially. Every vote would be of consequence. It would be a hard test. I mean, what's interesting is, as a quick aside, this is what happens when you try to fit five or six parties into a system that's meant for two parties. Right. I'm not going to do an electoral reform thing. That's for a different, that's a different fight for a different day. But this is this is what happens. So yeah, so, so Vancouver-Granville. Also, uh, the uh, Victoria is an interesting race. It's a, it's a orange-green race in, in Murray Rankin's old seat. Right between um, Laurel Collins, who's a, a city councilor in Victoria, and Rochelle Coy, who um, is a fascinating indigenous woman who once said to me uh, when I met her, this was John A. McDonald's seat, and I want to take it from him. Nice. And I thought that was one of the best lines I'd ever heard. That's and great. I was like, well, I, geez, I, I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> you know, I, would, nice. I would love this indigenous woman to take John A. McDonald's seat uh, for all kinds of reasons. So, I, so those are fascinating too, but also closer to home. I, I try not to be too Ottawa-centric sure. because you know I don't want to be a Laurentian elite. But Ottawa Centre. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I heard just anecdotally that there's a few signs that have popped up. Oh, yeah, they're For Catherine McKenna that are free of liberal branding. They are Catherine McKenna alone. Emily Tamman for the NDP is obviously a a formidable and appealing candidate. So I'm wondering if their internal polling is telling them there's some vulnerability in that riding. Uh, and it does is. swing, right? It's a, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty, it's going to be interesting. I, I like the fact that if nothing else, if everything matters on election night, that is a good thing to me. If, as you Absolutely. say, like we keep watching region by region because it all matters as it's counting up, I think that might be good for us. I, I agree. And interesting that the signs, so Catherine McKenna's, I've seen photos of them. They are, there's some pink ones, and there's maybe a green one. I can't remember the colors. I think it's there's pink and blue, and one is like protect your right to choose. Right. And I yes. Think the black. Other one, there's a black one. And I think the other one hinges maybe on climate explicitly, yeah. but without the party branding. 
Yeah, which is, it's a little reminiscent of what liberals were trying to do uh, provincially in Ontario when Kathleen Wynne was headed for defeat. All of a sudden they were, you know, you'll notice, by the way, a lot of the branding in this election, the Team Trudeau emphasis has been de-emphasized, right? It's, it's absent, so in the corner. <laughs> which and, is a fascinating shift from four years ago, right? Oh, like, yeah. Well, they, they do what it takes to win, right? I mean, yeah. But you're right, four years. It's I mean, just like the fa- that falling star is just a very interesting phenomenon to me. You can sort of, you can imagine the books that are coming out in a few years oh, unpacking yeah. all this. Well, and it happened, to, what, what I find so fascinating is it happened to Pierre Trudeau. I mean, Pierre Trudeau won right. a majority in 68. By 72, he was back to a minority. Then a majority in 74. Then lost in 79, even though he had more votes than Joe Clark. And then was back with a majority in 80. So is, is what's fascinating to me is, We've had wacky periods before. <laughs> yeah. It isn't as if, you know, we think back to King Bing in the 20s, um, to, to the rise of Diefenbaker. We have weird times in Canadian politics. But this one seems particularly weird because it's it's never been this close. So let's go back and say, how did mm-hmm. we get here? Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the performances of the parties and their platforms in, in this 43rd election. What stands out as the high and low point? <laughs> so I, many I to honestly, choose from. I honestly, I'm having a hard time coming up with the high points. Yeah. I, I just found this such a... A sort of small, petty campaign. Like, there's just not a lot of big visions, big offers. I, I was watching the American Democratic debate a few days ago, and I thought, God, like, whatever you think of the individual proposals on this stage, at least there are big, bold ideas here. Yeah. We have not had a campaign like that. Um, the Liberals, I don't think, ran a good campaign. Aside from the blackface scandal, which which was obviously a, a hideous surprise revelation in the middle of the campaign that, you know, you couldn't have planned for, um, well, I've sort of, well, well you should have. Someone could have planned for you it. You should have, maybe. <laughs> At least yeah. one person could At have planned for it. At least one person could have planned for yeah. it and done everyone else a yeah. solid. That's true. But the rest um, of us couldn't have. No, no. Um, I, I, I have come to sort of cheekily think in my mind of like the entirety of, of the Trudeau liberal campaign as the this effing guy campaign, yeah. where the message has come down to, come on, guys, you want us or you want this effing guy? Yeah. Which is, I, I get that that's effective, Um to a certain part of the liberal base, very effective. It's obviously a thing they return to again and again. I, I think they could have done that same kind of um, messaging, like that same kind of dichotomy in a way that would have been a little bit more intellectually honest and uplifting. Like they have done some stuff in four years in office that is worth bragging about. Yeah. And I, and I kind of don't understand to a degree why they didn't paint the dichotomy as a flawed but serious and real climate plan versus a not real climate. Well, they're doing that now. They're doing it now, yeah. but belatedly. I don't understand why that wasn't. I think that could have been, maybe I'm overestimating the importance of that issue. This was supposed to be a climate change election. Clearly, it didn't turn into one. But yeah. I feel like that could have been a very effective dichotomy. The The Canada Child Benefit they did has had serious, real good effects for people. They do, you know, they tend to trot it out, but I find it's in a very offhanded way. I just feel like there could have been a less scare tactic-y and more substantive way to make the case we have accomplished a lot. We are a progressive and effective government. These guys are not going to do that or they're going to undo it. Make your choice. Yeah, I mean, it's, so you, what's interesting is they have pivoted to all this late in the campaign. Yeah. I mean, you raised the question, why not earlier? And I think, I mean, they perhaps just didn't expect it was going to go this bad. It could have been hubris. Not that I would ever accuse the liberals of no having one, any hubris. No one but, ever would but, do that. But I will say this, I mean... I think the election has been nasty, so the campaigns have been nasty and disappointing, but in some ways the election has has been about 
issues. It's been the campaigns that's the problem, if that makes a sense. I mean, voters are still picking up on some stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. if you ask, in fact, there was some data on this. Young people, issue one was climate change. And then they care about a few other, a handful of other things, but one was climate change. If you look at conservatives and older folks, it was taxes and, and um, the deficit and things like that. So, sure. I mean, there are, there, people are identifying with, with some issues. And, and the stakes are high, and there are differences between the parties, but you're right, it just for whatever reason, the va the, it seems that the majority of our time has been spent talking about nonsense yeah. um, or substantive non-nonsense issues that we shouldn't have to talk about because people should know better. <laughs> right? Right. So, right. I mean, blackface, for instance, was an issue. It, it is something you need to talk about. Sure. The election is about, among other things, race, no doubt. Um, but you would expect people to know better than than to behave like that. Yeah. But here we yeah. are. Yeah. It was sort of a, it was just one of those accidents of timing that I was much belatedly obviously reading Tr Justin Trudeau's biography during the campaign, right at the time when blackface broke. I had just read the chapter where he talks about his high school education at Brebeuf in Montreal and goes on at length for pages and pages and pages about the robustness of his education. Like I found it kind of dazzling, like as a kid who grew up in Northern Ontario going to a, you know, a mediocre public school. And so then when you couple that with, and of course, you know, he, he explained to some degree the blind spots through the lens of his yes. privilege, but that also cuts the other way. Like how is this not a person who was not in, in the course of that amazing education made aware of that context? Anyway, it's yeah. not worth, like it's, it's all been unpacked, but boy. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's been it's been frustrating for me because I know a lot of people are saying it's the Seinfeld election and that it's about nothing, and I, I think it is about something. I think it has been, for many people, about climate. For many people, it's been about affordability um, and including Obamacare, dental care, tuition, green so on, free tuition, so on. But that has been drowned out by the nonsense. Yeah. So uh, that, that's been deeply frustrating, which leads us to a... The question of turnout, you know, turnout in 2015 was, a, I mean, here's the thing, the turnout always decides who wins. <laughs> you know, it's such a, people say, well, you know, the turnout will really decide who wins. Like, well, logically speaking, turnout always decides yes. who wins. But, but it did very profoundly and specifically. Well, the formation of it, right, yes. is, is the question of who turns out and where they turn out will be, yeah. will be, will be decisive. And 2015, you'll know the liberals did well with younger folks and indigenous folks and turnout was up to 68.3%. What do you think about this time around? Well, I, I was shocked, and I still haven't managed to make sense of it with the fact that advanced poll turnout is way up, like almost thirty percent. It's, it's Keener's. It's Keener's voting early. Sure, but yes, I mean, obviously that's it. But I mean, and it sounds like you have a slightly more char charitable or optimistic view of like the substance of this election than than I do, but. I kind of wasn't under the impression that this was a campaign that was going to motivate people. Even Keeners, even yeah. with the convenience, um, I've been really surprised. And I actually think that could be, unless the, the uptick in turnout is specific to the advanced polls and does not carry through to regular voting day, which is entirely possible. Yeah. I don't know what the contours of that are. That to me is the is one big X factor that really might yeah. shift things on, on Monday. Because like you'll remember in 2015, the Tories basically got almost identical numbers yeah. of voters that they did in 2011 when they won a majority, but the Liberals went through the roof. Like, I think they gained, like, something like 3 million or something. Yeah, they brought new people out. Yeah, so, and, and that's that's how they did it. So if those people come back, like, if, if or, or some similar group of people, because we know, like, that the general rule is 
older people tend to vote no matter what. They tend to be more dedicated younger people or more marginalized people who in very broad strokes tend to vote more progressively are are a little bit more fickle about whether they come out or not. Yeah. So the it, spread between younger voters and older voters is sometimes something like 60 points. It's crazy. 18 to 24, um, 65 to 74, you often see it something like 20% versus 80%. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's baffling. I, I haven't made sense with it or made sense of it or I guess made peace with it, mm-hmm. but it could be a really interesting wrinkle in what happens on Monday. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, so the, interestingly about the advanced polls, there's a trend in, re, in jurisdictions where they have advanced polls that they're up. But, but sometimes it seems to be the case that it's just displacing turnout rather than adding new turnout. Uh, because it's people taking advantage of the convenience. That, that seems to be the case. In fact, in some places, you have advanced turnout going up and overall turnout going down. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to watch. That we also had, But we also had a bunch of campus turnout. Campus turnout was right. up, was way up. They added, I think, more polling stations this year. They expanded the campus vote program, and it's gone up, which presumably helps progressive parties, including yep. the liberals. But uh, the, the interesting, uh, I think... For turnout, we've we've had the unstoppable force of a deeply nasty campaign meeting the immovable object that is a close election. So you'd assume in a close election, people would be more keen to turn out. Yeah. But in an awful campaign where people are demotivated, they wouldn't. And I wonder, too, if now that a lot of the, the conversation is centering on strategic voting, I wonder if people get a bit, and I don't mean this to sound patronizing towards the average voter, but that can be a hard thing to puzzle out, right? What should I really do? Where should I really park my vote depending on my personal priorities? I wonder if people get, uh, if there's some amount of paralysis or or uncertainty um, that that depresses turnout a bit if people just sort of say, I don't know what the right thing to do is here, so I don't want to screw it up either way. That's pure conjecture, but I wonder. Yeah, I wonder too. And, And again, I mean, I'm curious to see of those who turn out, why they turned out. Yeah. I mean, what what was it that drove them to the polls? I mean, and, and again, you would see that stratified by probably by region, but but certainly by age, because I do think this was pretty close to the climate change election, at least for half the country or for a third of the country was paying attention. I mean, it was. What's interesting is we say you know this election is about X, Y, or Z, when the truth is it's always about X, Y, or Z in region A, B, or C, and among age groups. You know, um, I was trying to think of three other consecutive alphabet letters. <laughs> it's amazing. We always say X, Y, Z, A, B, C, but we never think of the middle bits, do we? That's true. L, M, N. L, M, N, O, P. No, L, M, N sounds weird. L, M, N. Yeah, Trunk it sounds cable. like a '90s um, soft rock band. But I, <laughs> but so yeah, but but I so it clearly was about climate for some people and and farm And what would be kind of nice is if we feel we being the thinky inside the Queensway people declare this somehow, you know, as I obviously arrogantly have, somehow a flat election or a petty election. But then if people come out in droves, that is actually really interesting, really refreshing and really empowering to me. That if if we, if the parties aren't putting out much, like they're not giving people much reason to vote for, they're just giving them a reason to vote defensively against, but people come out anyway, um, I think that's a really good thing. I think it tells us that voters are paying attention and that they've kind of crafted their own narrative about what this is really about or what really matters to them, even devoid of the parties giving them much reason to show up. So do you think this would look different if local news was stronger? I mean, I often wonder, so the national media picks up on the nonsense and it amplifies it and that becomes the story. And that's, and given there's a paucity of, of 
local media these days. People go to social media and they go to the media that remains. And, and that's where the nonsense is being talked about. But I wonder if local media was stronger, whether or not we would find that at the local level, there were serious substantive debates happening, right? That's a really good question. You know, there are things that deeply... So look at um, Gord John's writing. He's an NDP MP. Well, uh, he was an MP. He's up for re-election. He is in Courtney, Alberni, on the island, Vancouver Island. He's in a blue-orange switcher race. One of the big issues there is local fisheries. I mean, we'd never talk about that nationally. And we'd never say the election is about fisheries. And yet for people in Courtney, Alberni, it is. Um, we didn't talk about the pipeline all that much in this election either. No. It, it hardly ever came up. And yet, if you're in North and South Burnaby, in, in greater Vancouver area, uh, in British Columbia, it probably did. Uh, you know, what, 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 what was fascinating was Bill 21 was one, seemed to be something that did transcend region. It was a yeah. provincial bill that became a but national But I wonder issue. if it was because it was a thing that fascinated the national media, like it, it featured heavily in the debates. And, and I would argue, rightly so. It's, yeah. it's a pretty big picture issue. I wonder if the cannibalization of local media is contributing to our tendency, I think, a growing tendency in Canada to treat federal elections like presidential elections as opposed to like local representation elections, which, you know, maybe actually fits the structure of our system better. And if you had more local coverage, like exactly what you're highlighting, people would vote more locally. And then the national picture is what it is. And whoever gets to run the show runs the show. Um, I wonder if the most of the coverage you're getting is national just contributes to this kind of horse race presidential model, um, which is not super healthy. And, and I think probably like you and I both grew up in smaller places outside of major centers. Yeah. Where are you from? I don't know, but Sault Ste. Marie. Sault Ste. Marie, yeah. yeah. I'm from Peterborough. So, so we, people yeah. vote pretty locally there. Like like, like they do because like it's by, I think, by function of, by, by virtue of the fact that your local issues get ignored nationally. They are distinct from the national picture unless you have a strong local representative who gets it and goes to bat on them. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that gets drowned out. Like even, you know, I've been talking to my parents lately and they're debating how to vote, but through the lens of the national picture, not local. Um, and that feels to me like a shift over the last decade or two. Yeah, my so my I, I have discussed this and and been given permission to say what I'm about to say. Let me just preface what I'm about to. I say. I did not get my parents' permission to cite them there. So hi, I hope it's okay. Well, I was, but that that's that's perfectly anodyne. But my this is the first election that my mother has ever voted. Oh wow! She's fifty six years old. I think that was the part I needed permission for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> She's 56 years old, and this is her, her first election. How come? Well, it, she just thinks it, it matters. It's close and it matters, which I found fascinating. And my, she cites my book, so I, which, which is how I sneak in a plug for the book. But um, it, it's fascinating. But Peterborough, so she'll be voting in Peterborough, is a bellwether riding. It went from Dean Del Mastro to Miriam Monsef right. in one election cycle which tells you everything you need to know about how yep. weird Peterborough is because that is that is not just a big party swing. That is a big MP swing. Yes, yes. For a couple of reasons <laughs> yeah. uh, that people can Google. So uh, it, it's utterly fascinating to watch that. And But but I think you're right. I think I'd never thought of it before, but the the concentration of media and, and, the, and the decline of local media might well be driving the presidentialization, which is already happening anyway, right? We already think about it that way. The campaigns are longer in Canada now in the sense that 
we, we have a fixed election date. People start campaigning months ahead of the actual writs being issued. So we look to the U.S. We talk about who is, who's got a term, who's got a mandate, who's sitting. You know that on Monday night there's going to be a lot of tweets about the prime minister elect. Well, this is going to make people like poor Phil, like I say, have strokes. Oh yeah, I mean, I I I I think we ought to um, put Phil in protective custody. <laughs> He's going to be such a valuable resource for the nation for the next month. He or already two. is. Yeah, he I mean, already is. He's my nemesis, but, I should say, but <laughs> but I I I mean, I like him. I still like him. Uh, Yes, he no he in British Columbia in 2017 we went through this right, and the Christy Clark and the BC Liberals had more seats than uh, either end combined the the Greens and the oh sorry uh, sorry she had more seats than the BC NDP, but the BC NDP and the Greens had enough to have I think a, a one seat yes plural a majority something like that but someone had to put up a speaker. So the one of the liberal M- MLAs, Daryl Plekas, became the speaker. We went through this forever. Christy Clark was the sitting uh, premier. She had more seats, but not a majority. She said, I'm going to try. She, she presented to the legislature what we called the clone speech. She basically took the NDP's platform and presented it on her own and tried to govern, and she was immediately defeated. And then John Horgan was asked to form a government. So British Columbia, Phil was a, a great resource then. I learned a lot from him and, and still do. It, but, but British Columbia just went through this, and New Brunswick just went through this. So those two provinces need to enlighten the rest of Canada, because already you could see the, shall we say, selective or misleading rhetoric yes. at the national level being trotted out. Like, you can see the preemptive strikes trying to frame this. Well, I want to talk about that now, then. Let's talk about government formation. So yeah. nobody seems to understand our system. Yeah. It, there it's seemed, a complicated one, to It be is fair, complicated. It's, it's, it's pretty it's, intricate. It's arcane, it's ancient, but, I mean, it, it worked. But one of the, the challenges is we Americanize it. Mm-hmm. And... There seems to be a tension between some normative expectations, like the party with the most seats gets to govern, and what the law says, which is the the uh, serving prime minister has the first chance to meet the House and try to command confidence. So what do you think the the battle over government formation will look like in a in a minority parliament? So the first caveat is that I am not an expert in this. Yes, it's pretty exactly. intricate, but um, I've been reading Phil Agassay's work and trying to educate myself. So, I mean... You can already see Andrew Scheer setting up this this framing and this expectation that I think he used the, the term like the modern convention yes. is that the party with the greatest number of means. seats forms. It, I don't think it means anything. Modern convention makes um, no sense to me. But it sounds good, right? Yeah. Like it's it's going to land with a lot of voters it, because it's also intuitive, right? Of course, like, like insofar as ordinary people understand the Westminster system, which can be pretty complex and is often, I think the mechanics of it are hidden from us yes. because we so often end up with majority parliaments and it is just the obvious outcome. So it, it it would it would also be understandable in terms of like an electoral psychology kind of perspective, if the Tories come out of this with the most number of seats, then that tells you something about where the country as a whole is and the people they've picked. But because, as you said, the law dictates that the prime minister gets the first crack, and because he has logical allies who would support him, you, it doesn't. It's not hard to imagine. Like that almost seems like a very likely outcome that the Tories come out with the most seats, the Liberals make friends with NDP and Greens in some combination and attempt to govern. But 
it's a bit worrying how divisive that could get, like how that could read because people may have a hard time understanding the intricacies of the fact that that's perfectly normal. And we still have kind of the ghosts of the 2008, you know, uh, unholy coalition that people heard about and understood to be bad and wrong, even though it's not, it's perfectly fine. Um, I mean, I guess the simpler outcome is the liberals come out with some kind of weak minority and they sort of are, are seen to have a more obvious kind of, sanctioning to go ahead. Well, but let's highlight how silly this whole thing is because you're, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I, I will give Andrew Shear this, this credit. Um, it, it certainly seems intuitive that whoever has the most seats Absolutely should govern. Absolutely it does, yes. And yet what's important is a stable parliament that can support a government, right? That, so it doesn't, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how but many do seats you, you have. do you think people see it that way now? No, they don't. Yes. And, and, and Andrew Shear is reflecting conveniently I think how people see it, but let's put it this way: I think people see it as a victor vanquished. Thing. They do in, yeah. in the American system. Although Donald Trump had fewer votes than Hillary Clinton, but more electoral college votes. So go go figure. So even that system isn't doesn't stand sure. up on on that measure. But let's say this: let's say the Liberals have 141 seats, and the Conservatives have 142, but yeah. nobody wants to work with the Conservatives, um, and and a couple parties want to work with the Liberals. You know, in that case, would you say, well, the conservatives have more seats, so they should govern? I mean, a one seat difference? I actually think that, and that's where I think the math is important because I think, if um, it's ten in terms seats, of in terms yeah. of perception, yes, I think I think a thin margin makes it a much more um, like on a pragmatic level, it yeah. changes the numbers. But I think maybe more importantly, it changes kind of the perception yeah. of the legitimacy of it. But yeah, if there's a if there's a gulf of like ten seats between them, that's a much harder thing to argue. It's still perfectly legal. It's still perfectly within the bounds of the Constitution yeah. and all that. But I, I think it's going to look much more troubling to people, and it's going to be much easier to make divisive hay out of. It is, and and, and again, and perhaps logically enough, like if, if you end up with ten more, you go look. This is what the country said they wanted, but they're not getting it. But also, the conservatives have sort of painted themselves into a corner. An interesting question too. Maybe I will reverse interview you. Is which of the Tories kind of signature positions do you think is the most canceling out of the possibility of them working with anyone else? I, I didn't phrase that well. well which one do you think prevents be, them from having electoral or, 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 or House of Commons friends the, the most profoundly? It's probably a couple things. I mean, the, the carbon tax probably uh, cuts a lot of the uh, cuts that they're proposing and then probably the pipeline. Um, if we're looking to the NDP and the Greens. But I actually think it would be the carbon tax that would do it. And in fact, Blanchette has very specifically said that he has no interest right. in supporting Go Figure. And he, given that it has been and the energy absolutely corridor. central yeah. to the Tory campaign, like I was with them in BC last week in Langley, and it was so funny. I, oh I tweeted about this after I heard your, your podcast where you and Kevin Milligan were talking about this. By far the biggest cheers Shears gets in his stump speech is when he talks about shiving the carbon tax. That is the thing oh, yeah. that people get really motivated about. So it's very hard to imagine him being able to capitulate on that. This this country makes no sense. You've got Andrew Shear saying he's going to eliminate a carbon tax that he has no authority to eliminate in British Columbia right. because it's provincial and, legislation. And British Columbians go nuts and, and British like Columbians go nuts. And you've got, you, uh, um, you've got Blanchette in Quebec saying he really wants to support a national carbon tax, but if you ever tried to force that down Quebec's throat, good luck. So th- this federation makes no sense. It is it's about as wacky as it gets. But this but again, you know, it, when when you look to parliament, this is what happens when you transpose parties onto uh, what a system that is really about MPs and who they support. 
Because, I mean, I, again, I, I want to go back to how absurd it would be. Imagine this. We go all the way across the country. It's a close race. It's a close race. We call all the ridings. We get to Gord John's riding in, in Courtney Alberni, and he loses by a thousand votes to the conservative. That could happen. And the conservatives end up with one more seat than the liberals. The whole parliament is supposed to be decided by a thousand people as close to the Pacific Ocean as you can get? Come could on. Happen. It should. I mean, but it's absurd, it, right? right and it's a reminder that it's ultimately members of parliament who get to decide who governs. That's their job. They get to decide. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, and at least finally something is interesting, right? Like yes. the, the polls have had such stasis. Like, uh, like I take your point about there are issues in this campaign, but there has been such intransigence in the campaign. And finally, in the last week to 10 days, that's given way a bit in a way that, that feels meaningful. I guess. What do you think the ND, so what do you think the NDP rise is about? What accounts uh, for the, the it's really, surging popularity? It of is really Chuck interesting. Sing? One thing I want you spent time with the campaign, which I is did, why I'm particularly really interested. early on before they before they kind of before they got before, cool when they when they were still before they got you cool, were on the bus before they I were was cool. an NDP hipster. I just yeah. want to make that clear on the bus. Um, I mean, I think to some extent the expectations and the framing of them, and particularly of Jagmeet Singh were so basement dwelling that it was inevitable that as soon as the campaign started, people would go, oh, you know what? They might be okay. But that is not to take away from the fact that I think they had a remarkably consistent campaign. I think from the get-go, their messaging, um, how they crystallized what was on offer was really disciplined and really clear. Um, in the first two to three weeks, they were the only party that wasn't continually kind of yanked off course by by bozo eruptions. They had like a real consistency. Singh himself clearly has been a revelation for people um, that they found him very relatable, very appealing in a campaign. And I know that's not a very intellectual or it's certainly not a policy oriented framing, but in a campaign that has seemed quite quite mean-spirited to a lot of people and and where this is entirely anecdotal where people have found the leaders of you know sort of the main parties just slinging mud at each other and just kind of a pox on all your houses feeling Singh has seemed appealing and and friendly um he they've got a very populist message it does present an interesting conundrum which might just fade super super quickly if if say the liberals get a a weak minority and the NDP are their obvious buddies but they have spent a lot of time um, framing their kind of populist message. It hasn't been explicitly, we are going to tax the rich. We are going to take money from these corporations and these rich people and give it to ordinary people. It has been locating that fault in the liberals, that the liberals yeah. have been favoring their rich, fancy friends. In which case, I found it amazing throughout the campaign that that messaging from the NDP has been almost identical to the messaging from the Conservatives. It's just that they have a very different set of solutions to that problem. But there were times like those stump speeches were almost verbatim, that the Liberals are in it for their fancy friends. They don't care about you. They don't care about the affordability of your life. But where the Tory solution to that is is tax cuts, leave a little more money in your pocket. The NDP solution is large-scale social programs that will leave more money in your pocket in a roundabout way. Right. I, yeah, it's funny. Is, is You get these awkward situations in campaigns like this where the conservatives and the NDP not only say the same thing. And, and look, we can go back to the origins, sort of contemporary modern political philosophy and see that at some point the left and the right come pretty close together. The snake that eats its own tail. Exactly. It's an Ouroboros. <laughs> uh, but um, they also, you see the conservatives sort of giving props to the NDP because it's a great way to stick right. it to the liberals. 
Right. They they love Jagmeet Singh when he's he's bleeding liberal votes. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's it's you see through it pretty obviously. You know, you these guys have spent how long slagging the NDP, and then all of a sudden, it reminded me a little bit of of when. Everyone uh, across the spectrum loved Jody Wilson-Raybould after having called for her resignation for months. <laughs> yeah. Charlie Angus, for instance, I think was was someone who had w- at one point called for Jody Wilson-Raybould to resign or something, and then became a, a big fan. Yep. After SNC Lavalin. Yeah. Expediency wins out sometimes. Do you remember SNC Lavalin? How quaint was that? How long ago does that seem? Do you remember uh, back in the uh, the height of winter, and that was. That was the thing. Like, like it is astonishing when you think of the ground all of this has traveled in the last eight months. And where the liberals were in the polls, they looked like world beaters, even back in, what, like late January? And then they looked like toast in the middle of a highway uh, in by March. Mm -hmm. And then somehow they just buoyed themselves back up again. It's it's astonishing. I mean, it's worth recalling. I mean, this election was six weeks, give or take. The 2015 election was 11. Yeah. God help us. Uh, yeah, no one should ever do no, that. Yet. No, it was awful. Uh, you know, but it, it flew by. Even even the blackface scandal lasted maybe a week. In, oh, at, uh, most. at most. And then yeah. we were talking about whether or not Andrew Shear was a real insurance salesman. Yeah. And then we were on to two planes. Yep. Two planes seems like that seems you know like a years ago. ago. And that yeah. So it's it's fascinating how remember, quickly here's stuff one. moves. Do you remember when the liberal bus hit the liberal plane? Oh that yeah. Was, I think that was the first night. Yeah. That seems like eons ago now. Yeah. It it, the, I mean, really, truly is. I mean, it's an election full of metaphors. It, yeah. So let's end with this question: Are you excited and looking forward to doing this again in eighteen to twenty-four months? <laughs> uh you know. So here's the thing: This was my first time covering a federal campaign as a full-time political reporter, just because of the way my career has gone. And I was earnestly, genuinely excited about this. Yeah. Like, um, it has been a, it has been both a lot of fun and excitement and a bit of a letdown just because it's been sort of a strange kind of shapeless campaign in a way. But um, I think there's some interesting stuff in the water. I would be interested to see what Jagmeet Singh looks like as a leader. Even if his party doesn't do so well, I hope they keep him around and we see how he matures on the federal stage because he clearly has something going for him. Um, and a little more, I know that's like a very specific storyline, but I would be interested to see what that looks like in 18 to 24 months. I, it took Justin Trudeau a while to become yep. Justin Trudeau, right? He wasn't in 2012. He was not 2015 no, Justin Trudeau. that's it. Um, and it's a big leap, I think, from provincial politics to federal. Um, he had all the baggage of, you know, he doesn't have a seat. His yeah. party there, his caucus is, you know, deserting him and riven from within. Um, I hope there's there's something more. There's I feel like there's vision lacking here. But you can't have like not every campaign is going to be 2015 just by the nature of of timing and narrative, right? That was that was an uplifting campaign because it was an old government that people were tired of and a new, fresh, exciting face. You're not going to get that that often. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if we have to do this again in a year and a half to two years, maybe we'll have something cool on offer. Then. Well, I'll close by saying this. Uh, Typically, minority governments, at least since Pearson, have lasted about two years. So the, the good news is they last about two years. The other bit of good news is typically if a government falls within its first six months, you know, maybe slightly longer, as much as nine months, the governor general will give a shot to the, another party to govern. So we might get lucky and, and really be able to make it at least two years before you have to do this again. Can I just throw out there my most ridiculous like pet I don't know, piece of fanfic. Yes, please. So, pre- like, so let's assume that 
whoever the, the the party who gets to form the government first out of this election is the liberals with some coalition or some combination of support and that they fall in four or five months who's the governor general going to give a shot to obviously it's going to be the conservatives yeah. the conservatives have no natural bedfellows yeah. the closest maybe would be some flexible liberals and wouldn't that be interesting i know that the chances of that are you know slim to zero but it's the only, I can't think of another way that works. And this year has already been so weird. Why the hell not? Well, here, I'll tell you what, though. I, I think if Andrew Scheer, if, if the Trudeau government falls in a couple months and Andrew Scheer forms government and we don't go to an election, uh, he'll stay because the liberals will get rid of Trudeau. They won't have a leader. They won't want an election. And the liberals will vote with the conservatives until they're ready to go. And that could be another 18 months even, right? So uh, it's worth recalling. Of course, the liberals, the, the conservatives could work with the bloc on this and that too. Sure. But, but it's worth recalling that parties. Although don't hasn't Sheer ruled that out? Although God only knows. Where well, he wants the majority. He months. says. Sure. But you know, parties, um, you know, they spend a lot of money. They spend a lot of time. They put people to the wheel, uh, pushing and pushing and pushing during elections, and they don't want to do it again. Yeah. And you'll recall the minorities' uh, governments in the mid to later two thousands were propped up by liberals. Those conservative minorities were propped up by liberals. Who The coalition, you talked about the coalition kerfuffle earlier. They had a chance, that coalition. Even after prorogation, they had a chance to bring down the government, and they just they backed off it. They weren't ready for an election. So we could be in a weird situation where, as you said, a government falls. We get a government within the same parliament, and it lasts for another two years because nobody wants to do this again yeah. <laughs> or is ready to. Yeah, like you can't play chicken unless you're prepared to keep yeah. going in a straight line, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like that blessing slash curse. May you live in interesting times. I think we're going to be living in interesting times. The flip side of that is may you find what you're looking for. Well, okay. That brings us slightly over time, but I could talk about this all day. So my thank you to you, Shannon Proudfoot Thanks of McLean's Magazine for coming in, um, to uh, Mira Ahmad, who I don't thank enough for being a fantastic producer and putting up with all of my nonsense. Thank you, Mira. And to everyone listening, this is election uh, night, probably election day and election night that you might be listening to this, in which case you should go vote if you haven't. It makes a difference. Uh, your individual vote might not, but collectively, our collective votes indeed do. And if you're listening to this after election night uh, in the future, then you can grade us on, on how we've done. And I look forward to hearing um, just how many A pluses you're willing to assign us. So thank you to, to everyone for listening, and we'll chat with you again soon. 